Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. It's been a few weeks since I released anything, so I thought I would check in with you to say hi. I'm still here in Shanghai, but for some reason I still haven't got myself caught up on editing the remaining episodes of season three. I don't quite know why that is, actually. You might be thinking it's because it's summertime here, and I've been preferring to spend my time frolicking outdoors rather than cooped up behind my computer screen editing down podcast episodes. But that's not it. For a start, summer in Shanghai is oppressively hot, and this year feels worse than usual. So you'd be an idiot to spend any extra time outdoors right now, except for strictly getting from A to B. And in any case, I'm the kind of person who likes staying indoors, spending hours behind my computer screen. That's half the reason I enjoy this project. And I have been doing that. In fact, I've been keeping myself busy with work and with a bunch of personal projects, but I somehow haven't made the time to sit down and edit any new episodes. I can't explain it. That's just how I've been feeling these past few weeks. Maybe it is the heat. It's making it difficult to do anything except the bare minimum. Is that just me, or does anyone else feel the same way? Anyway, while I've been in this frame of mind, I got a little note from someone the other day saying that he was finally back in Shanghai after being away for four years, and that person was the Swedish clown Björn Dalman. Meeting up with Björn again in person after all these years reminded me that for all the frustrations that those of us in China have experienced. It hasn't been easy for anyone around the world, least of all those who wanted to be in China but couldn't step foot here until now. And since Bjorn gave me a nice boost of energy, I thought I would do the same for you by re-releasing his original full episode that we recorded almost three years ago. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you're doing okay. I haven't forgotten about you, so please ping me a message on WeChat or whatever social media platform you can find me on. But for now, I will leave you in the company of Bjorn. What is your coronavirus story? No, my story is I can't go back to China. I mean, I've been based in Shanghai since 2014. Uh, but what I do is I, I work internationally, so sometimes I go to India, London,、uh, Sweden, of course, to do tours, and I just happen to be on a tour going first Sweden and then India when this outbreak came. So I was supposed to be back in China in March 2020 after the tour, and I'm still not there. So it's so weird. It's like my life keeps happening in China. You know, I had to direct. This thing I was planning to direct this summer online, so it's it's just weird. And where are you now in that case? I am in my hometown in Sweden. It's called Uppsala. It's the fourth biggest city of Sweden. In Sweden, we officially call this a big city. We have four big cities. Uppsala is one. It's a joke because the metro station in Jingan, where I usually take the metro. Has more travelers per day than we have citizens in this hometown. We have like two hundred thousand. We're very close to Stockholm, so we have this minority complex going on, which you can feel it when you do art, when you start companies. Everybody talking about it, like you shouldn't think you're someone special. Oh, you, you're from here. Why didn't you make it in Stockholm if you're that good? 
it's very interesting. It's a horrible city to do theater in, and I guess that's why I want to do it. <laughs> you like the challenge? I think I do, yeah. That's really funny. And Sweden was interesting because of the way it treated coronavirus. Oh, yes. And what was your experience of that in Sweden? Well, it's been tiring. Why do we do this? Uh, why, why is there no law that we have to carry masks? Why are the schools still open? So there's a huge and very, very tiring debate going on in the media, on social medias. You can't meet anyone without this debate going on. And all of a sudden, everybody in Sweden is a pandemic professor expert. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you have kept your sense of humor. But that's maybe exactly what Sweden and the world needs right now. And I think it's a good segue into what we'll be talking about today. So let me jump straight into the introduction. Thank you so much, Björn. You are a professional clown, is that right? Yes, that is right. And uh, here is what our mutual friend Maple said about you. Uh, his name is Bjorn. He's from Sweden. I met him on comedy. He's a very funny clown. And then later on, we work together in a charity hospital. And I talk more. And I feel like he's very warm-hearted. And uh, he's very professional. Yeah. How did you and Maple first get to know each other? What's your story? Well, there was this new comedian at Kung Fu Comedy. And she was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and it also turned out she was a super nice person. Simple as that. And was Maple one of your sidekicks? Uh, no, she, she hasn't been sidekicking me in a clown show yet. I am sure she would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I am guessing what object you have brought today that in some way exemplifies your life here in China. But uh, why don't you explain what you've brought? Well, <laughs> why don't we do this? I will put it on and you tell me what you see. <laughs> you like this? <laughs> so this is, this is my red clown nose, the nose that I'm wearing when I'm doing shows. And as you can hear, I mean, there are breathing holes, but it covers my nose. So the voice immediately goes a bit nasal. And then when you're in a schoolyard in China, there are 400 kids screaming and you have to emphasize, make your voice stronger. What you do is you make it even more nasal and then you end up here. And this is very interesting because there's a voice technique called twanging. This is what babies do because babies can scream mom, mom, mom for an hour without getting hurt. And they actually use the same technique. So this is my clown voice and it actually comes from the nose. And I will take it off now because I think we will scare listeners away. <laughs> I just did a tour because in Sweden, kindergartens kept open, right? And we were allowed to do shows for about 10 kids. Well, you mentioned that you are in Sweden. You are one of the people in this series that I am interviewing remotely, which is a shame. But I'm very grateful that we could still do this. Whereabouts in Sweden are you right now? Uh, I'm in my hometown. It's called Uppsala. It's the fourth biggest city of Sweden. I came to consider it a very, very small town. It's a different life to what you normally would have been used to in Shanghai. I hope that you can come back as soon as possible. How long have you actually lived in Shanghai? So I've considered Shanghai my base uh, since 2014, when I started studying Chinese at the Shanghai Theatre Academy. And then I've been, you know, student visas, uh, business visas. I finally got my working visa 
And now I couldn't even enter with it because of the pandemic. So I have to start the process all over. But I mean, yes, uh, six years. But that's not where your China story started, right? You had a connection long before that, didn't you? Yes. So I guess it started with my hippie parents. So I grew up in a house where, you know, they would talk about Taoism. My mother started doing Tai Chi in the late 80s. And then my father started doing Tai Chi. And they were these kind of parents. I remember I was 14 years old and I came home from school and I just feel horrible. And I felt so stressed about everything. And my mother gave me this book that's called the Tao of Pooh, as in Winnie the Pooh. And that was my introduction to Taoism, which of course was linked to the Tai Chi they kept talking about. And something just clicked inside of me and I was like, wow, this is it. From that point, I also picked up Tai Chi, Tai Chi Chuan. So I became so interested in Chinese martial arts, uh, watching Jackie Chan movies every day. I wanted to do Kung Fu, but my father said, that's too violent, you can't do it. When I turned 16, I started high school, and that year they passed a law saying that you're allowed to study any language you want to if there's an available teacher. So I talked to all of my friends, and I made like 30 people fill in a blank saying that I want to study Chinese. And none of my friends actually showed up for class, but because there were 30 people, the school had to find a teacher. In 1999, I was 17 years old. I went to a language trip to Beijing. There were bikes everywhere. You didn't really see cars. Yeah, I just fell in love with it. Like many foreigners do that has China dreams, you project every silly little dream that you ever had about life. You project into China. But then, you know, I started doing more theater. Uh, I stopped doing martial arts. I didn't have time. I kind of forgot the Chinese that I learned. Then in 2010, I, I was drawn into this international theater project that toured Sweden, England, and Shanghai. So I came back to Shanghai, and again, I, I just fell in love with the city. Like, day one, I have to live in this city. And it was so funny. At the same time as I got this job, I was at the gym, and I saw a guy in the sauna... And I had noticed him in the gym because he was doing other exercises I'd never seen before. And he did it with an intensity that i never seen before. I was like, who is this weirdo? And I noticed he had a Chinese dragon tattoo, right? But this was like old style on his chest. And I was like, what? And then I hear him saying to another guy in the sauna that I just came back. I've been on a Chinese mountain for a year. So I asked this guy in Chinese, was it the Shaolin mountain? And the answer in Chinese, no, it's the Wudang Mountain. Ah. And I was like, what? You know, the Wudang Mountain from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the film. I asked, is this mountain for real? I thought it was <laughs> a, a legend. And it's like, yeah, I just been there. So I started training for him, of course. He moved back to the Wudang Mountain. Jakob is, is his name. And when I was in Shanghai performing, I, I contacted him saying, hey, I, I'm in China. Can I come to Wudang and just, you know, visit and take some pictures? He said, no, if you come here, you have to practice. So I went there for 10 days. I practiced. I was literally laying on the schoolyard next to the temple, crying of pain. And I was like, this is it. And I had just started my company back in Sweden. We just started to receive funding. We were doing well. No, this is it. 
So I changed my life and I was like, okay, I'm going to do 100 day basic course on this mountain. Whoa, 100 days. Of pain. <laughs> oh. Of painful Tai Chi practice. <laughs> when I think of Tai Chi, Tai Chi Chuen, it doesn't seem like it should be painful. There's also a very real fighting aspect of it that people don't train nowadays. There are programs for strengthening the muscles. There are hardening exercises. There are weapons. You have to do your push-ups, right? And then you use the, the soft training to balance it up. So you can train it with different approaches. Right. Well, we have got to the part of the story where you are doing Tai Chi on a mountain. <laughs> yes. And I can't see how that is connected to you now working as a clown. Well, <laughs> I wish I had a super smart answer. The, the answer <laughs> is no connection. I've always been interested in clowning. There was a company in Sweden, 123 Stunk. They found a way to do clowning for grown-ups. So what they did was that instead of making these slapstick kind of mistakes, like, you know, falling on your ass, they found a way to translate these kind of mistakes to psychological mistakes. So they started to do Shakespeare plays as clowns. And this totally blew my mind. I saw their version of, of Macbeth. It was a huge game changer for me. I was like, wow. So since that day, I was like, I have to be a clown. And I had also heard about this organization called Clowns Without Borders. They went to war zones playing clown shows for kids in refugee camps. And then nowadays they go to all kind of underprivileged uh, children in, in crisis, as to say. So I wrote to them and saying that, hey, I really want to work with you guys. I heard about you. What you do is amazing. And they say, well, we don't have a budget to create shows. You have to have your own routine already. And I was like, well, I never, I never did clowning. I never studied clowning. But then in 2012, I worked with a guy, an Indian actor named Rupesh Tilu. So he was working with Clowns Without Borders. I directed him. We did a clown play about environmental refugees. We went on a tour to USA with that play. UNESCO Center for Peace invited us to play. And the last day of that tour, he was supposed to go to a school for deaf children to do the show. And he wakes me up in the morning, staring at me with big eyes, saying that, Bjorn, he, he couldn't pronounce my name, Bjorn. So he always say, Bjorn, did you ever do clowning? I was like, I did a one-hour workshop six years ago. Why? He said, get in the car, you're in the show. <laughs> I was like, how do I develop a clown character? And he said, find a costume. So Rupesh gave me a crown that he uses in another show. And he gave me the flippers that we did in this show about environmental refugees. And he looked at the crown and he looked at the flippers and said, okay, you're the frog king, get in the car. <laughs> and in the car, he said, okay, if the kids laugh, stay. And your goal is to stay for one minute. And I enter the stage and then I have no idea what happens. Ten minutes after, I see Rupert waving like, get off the stage, it's my turn. <laughs> and so the Frog King was born. That actually is your character now. Oh, totally. I did more than 400 shows with the Frog King. Oh, yeah. so there it was, the birth of the Frog King. That was the birth of the Frog King. And the Rupert said that, okay, now we have a clown show. Let's go to Clowns Without Borders, Sweden, and say we want to make a Clowns Without Borders tour to India. 
And that was another life changer because we played for children living on the streets. Uh, we went to orphanages for kids infected by HIV from birth. And we also went to the red light districts where women who were trafficked as children are being locked into brothels and their kids, they hide under their mother's beds when the mothers have customers. And we perform for these kids. And the way those kids laugh when we perform, I never heard anything like that. Wow. I am not a religious person, but seeing those kids laugh, that's the only religion I need. I don't understand how there can still be happiness and hope and laughter in them. We kept doing this project year after year. We went back to these kids Second year, they were laughing as much. Third year, they said, we want our mothers to see the show. Because oh. there were kids there who never in their entire life seen their mothers laugh. They fell off their chairs laughing. Mm. Rupesh moved back to India and he trained Indian actors in the art of clowning. Some of these kids wanted to learn this. So these kids now study clowning and they did their own shows which was amazing. And they've been touring Europe. Imagine oh you, you grow up locked into a basement in a brothel, and then you tour Europe doing clown versions of Indian folk tales. It's completely amazing. So, of course, this gave me some new perspectives on what art can do and what clowning can do. Then I came to Shanghai in 2014. I'm going to be at the Shanghai Theatre Academy to study Chinese. And uh, at the school, there was this Swedish lady who was at the moment doing a PhD in directing. Her name is Maya Stina Johansson, Maya Lauscher. And she ran a company doing children theatre in the way that Sweden got world famous for in, back in the 80s in Shanghai. And I was like, oh, my God. And she was going to reopen the play. She asked me to, to direct the reopening which I did, I said, let's do test shows. And since we anyway do test shows, we might just as well give them for free. And since we're giving it away for free, why don't we find these underprivileged children here in Shanghai? And we did, and it went so well. We had amazing workshops afterwards, and we were like, whoa, this is it. So in 2015, we created a Klausdot project, the first ever in China. We targeted children of migrant workers, and we started touring schools and kindergartens with a new clown show that we made. So how did you get to know about where these schools for migrant children are? Like, I've never actually heard about that before. So there are charity organizations in China. There is one very big and quite famous called Stepping Stones. So that was one of the first ones we came in contact with. And then there was this professor at the Shanghai Theatre Academy who put us in contact with an organization called Yodao. They are running kindergartens in the suburbs for these kids. They have been amazing. One of the reasons that this project is working and still running five years later is that this Yodao organization has been amazing. And this is also one very important thing that we invite the government people. We want everybody to see what we're doing we want everybody to know this. And nowadays, it is the Frog King going around, and I involve Chinese actors. 
I train them in my workshops and then they go with me as my sidekicks. I let them learn the way I learned. I say, okay, get on the stage, stay for a minute, then I'll take over. And then we just build and build around it. Wow. So which is your favorite? Do you like the big productions or do you like the very simple Frog King with the flippers production? (laughs) The thing with Frog King is that it's totally based on audience interaction. Nowadays, I'm mostly touring with uh, a Chinese actor named Bian Xiao. I am the Frog King. He's the Todd Emperor. The whole concept is that the audience should feel that it's their show. They are the most important people in the world. So I keep eye contact with them all the time. And depending on their reaction, I change the show. If they think something is really funny, I do it again. And I develop that. And... (laughs) say that the kids really appreciate that we're angry with each other, then this is a show where we're constantly angry with each other. It's not fake. It is actually the audience's experience that is in the center. In that case, do you see a difference between, let's say, when you're doing The Frog King in India with that particular audience versus a Chinese audience? When it comes to the children, not at all, because children understands it. But the grown-ups, I mean, India has a very, very rich theater tradition, a lot of variety, all that. In India, they kind of accept this with an open mind. But in China, you have this, well, first you have this concept of biaoyan, right? Performance here is always someone is showing a skill, and then it's up to the audience to judge it. So just this talking to the audience, you can see that grown-ups are like, what is going on here? And then also, like, when we go to schools in China, the first thing they ask me is, what are you going to teach the children? And I say to these teachers, nothing. I just want them to be happy. And they say, why? Mm. (laughs) But then I do the show when they come up afterwards. And they say, oh, the kids were laughing. I say, I know. No, but they were so happy. I say, I know. Everything, you know, it has to serve a purpose. And when I say, no, I'm not interested in that, that is a huge cultural barrier. Wow. Well, we've come across something interesting, which is the deeper philosophy behind the clowning. And have you just said what it is? Like, is it simply to make people laugh and that's it? Or is there something more to it? Well, I'm the kind of person who likes to think there's always something more to it. Okay, I'm going to go pretentious. I'm going to quote Tao Te Ching, this old Taoist text. You know, it goes on and on about how special and amazing and fantastic the Tao is. And it says, the most stupid people would just laugh at Tao. But then again, if you couldn't laugh at Tao, it wouldn't be Tao. And I think the complexity is in the simplicity. It's the same thing with clowning. (laughs) Yeah. I think the key word is here and now. Because if we meet in laughter, then that is the only thing that exists right now. You can't feel angry when you're laughing. You can't feel sad the very moment you're laughing. And as simple as it sounds, that is the key. And you can connect a whole life philosophy around that. I would say it's about dignity. My recent trip was to Nigeria. We were playing for former child soldiers, 20-year-old guys who, from the age of 9, 10, were forced to be soldiers, and then they were liberated, put into prison. You don't want to know what these guys have been through or what they have done to other people. But at the very moment you look in their eyes, you make them laugh and you share the joy. There is no history. There is only this sacred room where we are who we are deep inside. 
Same thing, you know, now Sweden is uh, welcoming a lot of refugees from Syria. I've been to Lesbos, I've been to this refugee camp. But the moment you share a laughter with these kids, we would gather like 200 kids just out in the fields playing for them. Kids were coming, they were carrying their younger brothers and sisters in their arms. And those parents who came there, I saw mothers starting to dance and sing in the show because they got so happy to see their kids laugh again. And in that moment, there is no difference. We're only human. I mean, these experiences are the closest I ever came to religious experience. And they were literally triggered by me falling on my ass. (laughs) I mean, how beautiful can life get? Yeah. Well, we've talked about the aspects that are positive with clowning. I've got to mention the negative aspects, which is all the more prevalent these days, right? I mean... When you think about clowns these days, yes, you think about the classic clown, but then you also think about the evil clown, especially with, you know, Stephen King's It. So the guy playing the clown, uh, Billy Skarsgård, he's a Swedish actor. Oh, God, of course. We had the same clown teacher. Really? We had the same clown teacher in Theatre Academy. I I do what that teacher said. He does something else. He's making all the money. (laughs) Damn it. Where did your life go wrong? Come on, Dian. I mean, you know where I'm going with this. It's the archetypal image of the clown being something scary, especially for adults. So where does that come from and what's your reaction to it? Well, I think there are many angles to that. I think one is this... Now I forgot this word, but there's this psychological phenomenon as to say that the more human something gets, the more we identify up to a certain point where it's almost human, but not. And then it's just scary. I know it. It's called Uncanny Valley. Uncanny Valley. I should remember that word. (laughs) So that's one thing. And then there's also this aspect of because the clown is the trickster, right? It's the trickster archetype and the trickster represents chaos the human need to control chaos it's i mean you can find it in any mythology it's very deep our need to control chaos and clown represents chaos and then there's also this i mean characters who has the power to draw children to them is always scary and should be scary should always be careful for people who the children wants to run to right for obvious reasons So these are the like theoretical psychological explanations, I think. But then there are so many clowns. They haven't studied the technique. They just wear some handing out balloons at some events. And kids are so smart. They know this is bull. Right. And then you have this person with weird makeup, a fake smile. I think the fake smile is a big part of it. They run up to the kids doing weird stuff and Many times there's a very weird situation where the parents are pushing the kids, like, go and hug the clown, and the clown go, ah, the kid just wants to die. So you cross the border. You cross the border where the kids don't feel safe anymore. I mean, there's a technique. I teach this in my workshops. Whenever you enter a kid's personal space, you must ask permission. You look the kid in the eye. You read the body language. Does this kid want me to take one step closer or not? So again, it's about respect. It's the kid's or the person's experience, not my need to be funny. How interesting. If you're not careful, you can lapse into the same mistakes yourself, right? Totally. And I do. I mean, I told you I did more than 400 shows 
every single show. There are moments where they're just not laughing. And then you learn after a while, you learn that it's like stand up. Okay, you move on, you do something else. Maybe you have a couple of safeguards in your back pocket that will always work. But it's it's all about listening. Yes. And then let's go back to China. If you talk about the traditions of clowning, is there any equivalent at all in Chinese history? Well, yes and no. I mean, the Beijing opera has the clown tradition. They have the Xiaochou, the little ugly, literally, which has the white face. And I know they, people explain to me that there's the warrior clown, which is doing all the acrobatics and stuff, and something called the cultural clown, Wenchou. I haven't really seen it and I haven't really understood it, but it's more like word-based joke. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. But it's believed to be a bad character. It's a character doing wrong, doing bad things, making a mess. And this is very difficult because when I'm in China and I say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Xiaochou, the association is not a funny guy who makes kids laugh. The association is a villain. So we're struggling with this, all of us who are working with this. We're like, should we come up with a new name? Should we call it Mime Artist? Because people love Charlie Chaplin. And yeah, it's, we're, we're working on it. Then there's this other very interesting parallel. I also started teaching clowning in China. And it's been amazing because I really want to teach the philosophy of it. And the philosophy is basically celebrate your mistake. In China, because the culture is very strong that you can't lose your face, you can't make a mistake. I had Chinese students, grown-up people, starting to cry in my workshop, really saying, it's the first time in my life I'm allowed to make a mistake. And this is where clowning becomes really difficult. And, you know, we talked about the scary clowns. It's not about acting stupid. It's about daring to let people perceive you as stupid which means yes. you have to be as stupid as you actually are. You know, sometimes it hurts you for real. And then you want to put on a mask that is not the red nose, but this other kind of mask to protect yourself. But that's when you become the scary clown. That's when you feel it's fake and something weird is going on. Every joke I do on stage is a mistake I did for real in some show. I panic, but then the art is to share that true panic with the audience and let them laugh. And it removes the shame. The shame washes away. And you, you're, you're able to say to yourself, I'm okay. But this, this is very interesting because when I do Kung Fu, you know, my teacher hit me if I make a mistake. It's so interesting because Kung Fu, of course, it's a violent thing. It's, it's a martial art, which means that if I make a mistake, I might get killed. Which mm. means you have to create this culture of right and wrong. Clowning is the exact opposite. Mm. Interesting. Well, I mean, I have been in the camp of not really understanding or enjoying clowns in the past, <laughs> but you've really explained it to me, you know, the way that you use the art of clowning to almost battle the dehumanizing, the yeah. isolating nature of modern society. I, I can definitely see where clowning plays a part in that. I think so, yeah, because the concept of presence is so rare these days. It's so important to cherish these moments when we're in the same room, laughing at the same time. And I tell you, standing on a stage or a schoolyard, see 400 kids at the same moment just burst into laughter. It's, 
it's something else. It takes you to another yeah. world. For a few seconds, you are in a world where what you did not believe was possible is actually possible. And then you're, you're in a land that is magic for real. And when you're in that land, you can change things. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Bjorn. Um, I really appreciate that. And I hope that I can see one of your shows when you finally are allowed back into China. I will invite you. Let's move on to part two. Yes. Right. Well, let's move on to the questions then. My 10 questions. Yes. Okay. Question number one. What is your favorite China-related fact? The fact that you can walk in a park and you meet old men and women who actually has amazing Kung Fu skills. I have this 70-something-year-old teacher in Shanghai. He was teaching me spear fighting, this long three-meter spear. And he showed me and a bunch of other 30-something guys, okay, so this is how you hold the spear in one hand. And four of us, we couldn't lift the spear. It was too heavy. And this teacher, without an effort, just takes it up with one hand, hold the very edge of it, and balance it perfectly. And you see these things happening all the time. And it's like, yes, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Fairy Tale China is still alive. <laughs> Absolutely. They know <laughs> Yeah. They know shit. Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? Tai hao la. Too good. Tai is the same word as in Tai Chi, meaning too much. Mm. It refers to this whole Taoist theory of yin and yang. When something becomes too much of one thing, it turns into its opposite. So Tai would be the black dot in the white field of the yin and yang symbol. And you see these things all the time. I very much like this expression. It has this aspect of a very everyday speaking, but there's also this very, very deep philosophical meaning of it. Like, you feel the depth. What is your favorite destination within China? My heart will always be on Wudang Mountains. But what I heard is that they did what they did in Shaolin Mountain. They banned all the schools on the mountains and they built a village below, which is... Ah, yeah. Okay, well, this is a funny question. So the question I normally ask next is, if you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? But what was the reality of the situation? What have you missed the most and what well, haven't you? It's so funny because I don't feel that I left China. I am totally still in China. Well, I miss my friends. I miss the people. Yeah. And what about the things that you didn't miss? Like, what would you miss the least? Oh, the silence of Sweden. I love it. <laughs> ah. I am very sensitive to sound. Cars honking, drilling, people screaming, crowded restaurants, you know, that's the one thing. I feel it in my body. There's a higher level of tension when all this noise is going on. Yeah. I was asking you to find a quiet place in your part of the world. And I was like, yeah, well, what room should I pick? And <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that any noise in the background we heard in this recording would have come from outside of my window, not yours. Is there anything that still surprises you about life in China? Every day. So I, I do Kung Fu in People's Park. And I just remember going to the public bathroom there and they put a face scanner. You have to scan your face to get your toilet paper. I understand the logics of it because I hear people just take toilet paper and they bring back home to save money. And oh. But it's just, it's so bizarre. It's so many steps that's like... 
Could this have been done in another way? No, they put face scanner for toilet paper. Does this machine calculate how much paper I need? Because it see my chubby Western face and it gives me a lot. <laughs> like every country has their way of craziness. Yeah. You've reached my level of humor now talking about toilets. So <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. That's, <laughs> that's where I feel comfortable as well. <laughs> where is your favorite place to go out to eat or drink or just hang out? Well, I love going to new restaurants. And every time I find a small little restaurant that becomes my favorite, every time I go out from Shanghai and I come back, that restaurant has closed down. <laughs> yeah. Can so, you think of one particular one? I had a period when I was totally into Xinjiang food and there was this one small little Xinjiang restaurant. Oh, and there was this other one. It was called Seahorse Sushi that had grilled eel sushi. Oh my, it was amazing. And they made their homemade uh, spicy mayo sauce. It was, I think, 2017 or 18 it disappeared. I don't remember. Wow. What is the best or worst purchase you have made in China? If you want to buy magic tricks in Sweden, like I have this wand that it's so tiny you can hide it in your hand and then it becomes two meters. If you want to buy it in Sweden, you have to pay like 800 RMB and you buy it in China for like 50 RMB. Mm. So, <laughs> and I didn't know any magic when I started doing the magic shows. I bought things, what goes with the character, like what can I do? Now I like, I try to make a flower go big. I say, go big, bam, and the wand goes big. And I look at the flower getting angry with the flower and the kid goes banana screaming, look at the wand, look at the wand. I say, yeah, the wand is big, whatever the flower. Oh my God, the wand is big. <laughs> I could never do that in Sweden because it would cost me 30,000, which I very much don't have. But this show happened in China because I could buy, I had, two suitcases filled of magic gadgets that I was just playing around with. Yeah. What is your favorite WeChat sticker? It's a pink dragon hugging uh, a girl, and it's a story to it. Uh, I, in 2015, I met this Chinese girl on what was then called China Love Cupid, I think. This was before the Tinder era. She didn't speak English at all, so it was this total cliche of trying to communicate, trying to figure out, are we dating or what? She was talking about marriage on, I think, the fourth date. You know, all the cliches were there. But she looked like that little girl in the sticker. And when I talk to her, I feel like a big, pink, fluffy dragon. <laughs> so to me, <laughs> that series of a dragon and little girl sticker became our little story. So it's, it's a sticker attached to memories more than anything else. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it was beautiful. How long did it last in the end? I, I don't know if it even started, but <laughs> <laughs> we're still in touch, though, as, as friends. It's no nice. drama. Just I, I wish I could speak Chinese. <laughs> well, it's chicken and egg. You know, once you have a Chinese girlfriend, that's when the language comes to you, right? Yeah, and you know, that's what the, the Chinese teacher said at the school. Okay, step number one, find girlfriends. Step number two, here's your textbook. <laughs> what is your go-to song to sing at KTV? The title song of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, of course. So I wanted to become an actor 
because I saw Michael Jackson on TV and I wanted to become Michael Jackson. And too late, I realized that if you want to be a singer, you need to hit tones, which I was never really interested in. Um, (laughs) So I became an actor that was as close as I could get. But that also means when I was in high school, I wanted to be in all these musicals that they put up in that high school. And since I couldn't sing, I always get to play the drunk guy because then I can drunk sing. So I was Doolittle in My Fair Lady, and I got great parts. I think that's when I started to do comedy. Uh, I really love to do the Crouching Tiger song in Chinese because it's so beautiful, and me trying to hit tones, it's just, it's a mess. <laughs> What's it called? Does it have a name in Chinese? Uh, Weila Ai, because of love, or for the sake of love. Brilliant. Okay, I don't actually know that. I'm going to have to find that out. How does it go? Oh, I hate you. As I was singing, it's a girl singing, and yeah, oh. <laughs> I'm having fun. The audience is like, oh, bloody hell. Have you ever thought about incorporating it into a show in that case? Oh, ooh, that's brilliant. That is so. No, I think Frog King will have to sing this. And finally, what other China-related media or sources of information do you rely on? I try to listen to friends from different places. Like, I have my Chinese friends who rely on what they hear from their friends. And I have my Chinese friends who really, like, you know, try to dig into things. And I have my my American friends, my English friends, my Australian friends, my Swedish friends. So I I try to hear all the stories and try to not fall into conspiracies, but then also trying to be critical. Yes, I think that's a good way to do it. Although you're, you're getting everything secondhand if you do it just that way, right? That's probably very true. But then again, I mean... In a way, it's second-hand in the newspaper as well. But I, yes. I must say, I, I'm not that interested in understanding it every day, but rather put this in a 20-year perspective. Well, that answer alone tells me you're turning Chinese because these guys think in <laughs> centuries. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it's, it's relaxing in one way. Yeah. I mean, of course, when, for example, when there are Swedish elections coming up, I do research, but it's actually totally drains my energy. Oh, totally. But on one level, if you live in a society that is based on evidence-based science, you have certain obligations to play by those rules, whatever you think. It's an act of respect. You have to be informed to a certain extent because that is your obligation as a citizen. And then it's up to me when I want to dig deeper. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Björn. We've talked about Tai Chi. We've talked about toads. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. This was a true pleasure. (laughs) 